Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm talking to you live from Davos, where the World Economic Forum is looking on with some horror and trepidation at some of the big geopolitical events that, that we're living through but also uh, peering into extraordinary post-human technological futures. And I'm thrilled to have uh, a wonderful guest to help us make sense of what's going on here, but also to talk about this wider geopolitical turmoil. It's David Miliband. David is an ECFR council member. Um, He's one of the biggest brains in uh, British and international politics. He was foreign secretary in the UK from 2007 to 2010, but also worked on a lot of the other issues which are uh, taking uh, up people's attention here, such as uh, climate change as environment secretary. But for the last few years, he's been the head of the International Rescue Committee uh, in New York, which is a global organization that's working in many of the, the most dangerous and difficult parts of the world. So he's on the front line of a lot of the conflicts that we're seeing at the moment through the work he's doing supporting refugees and providing humanitarian assistance to those affected by this crisis. So, David, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Mark. And I'm a European as well. So, Indeed. Um, absolutely. I went to a, a dinner with a lot of European leaders last night where people were falling over themselves to say how proud they were to be European at this moment. In fact, the proudest tended to be British and Norwegians, people who weren't in the... Well, I went to a the... remarkable lunch yesterday where Tom Friedman said that the greatest thing that had happened in his life was the creation of the European Union, wow. which I thought was pretty, pretty impressive. And um, as a as a proud Brit who's also a proud European, I thought that was that made a lot of sense. Great. So, um, what it, I mean, there's lots to talk about. Uh, one of the the most striking things here is, in a way, that the sort of competition between the different geopolitical crises you have the Red Sea and the situation in Gaza and in the Middle East, taking up a lot of attention, lots of people from the Middle East here, but Zelensky flew in to make sure that Ukraine wasn't completely wiped off the agenda. It was obviously the big topic here uh, last year. Um, Maybe before we go into the specifics, you could give me a sense of some of the big things that you've been picking up and that you think uh, uh, are uh, making waves here. Well, I remember that in the late 1990s, Tony Giddens, the sociologist, gave the wreath lectures and talked about a runaway world. And it feels like a runaway world today with whack-a-mole attempts to deal with problems that pop up from quite deep within the Earth's surface. And whack-a-mole diplomacy doesn't work. And my overriding sense at Davos is that the two great forces of the modern world, one is growing interdependence uh, with all the risks that are associated with that. And then alongside that geopolitical fragmentation, those two forces are coming together in a way that is making it even more difficult to tackle both the big global problems, but also some that are quite local. And in a connected world, the local becomes a global problem. Yemen has gone from being a local problem to being a global problem was in the in the in the process of doing that and i've i've felt this very strong sense that it's the it's the davos of a leaderless world which is ironic given that a year ago everyone was very much more worried about the global economy than they were 
that they were worried about Ukraine, but they didn't feel global politics was breaking down quite in the way that it, it, it has. And um, you and I have talked before about the way in which the war in Ukraine united the West, but divided the West from the rest. And that's just one of the cross currents that you can feel at the moment. Obviously, the people that the International Rescue Committee works with are those who are suffering the most from these this sense of uh, geopolitical um, vacuum. Um, but I think that that is very present in the in the Davos conversation. And obviously, when you feel when you when you feel that something as important as Ukraine is struggling for attention, you can realize how difficult the situation is. And you've got this weird interplay here between war and politics. I'm chairing a session uh, tomorrow about 4.2 billion people are going to be taking part in elections next year, and there are, there's a lot of uh, talk about all these different elections going on. And uh, I mean, maybe we should take the, the, some of the, the crises one at a time, but it's very interesting on, on the Middle East, for example, there's quite a lot of consensus about some of the things that need to happen. You need a ceasefire, you need the hostages to be released. You need to have some sort of credible pathway towards a two-state solution, which involves reforming the Palestinian um, uh, uh, um, authorities so that they can actually uh, create a kind of legitimate, unified political um, leadership for, for the West Bank and Gaza. But at the same time, a sense that politics in, in Washington, politics in, in Tel Aviv, even politics in, in the kind of Palestinian territories. Um, sorry, the other bit was the regional um, element. But, but politics everywhere is very, very complicated. Well, you've got to remember that even in countries that don't have elections, governments operate in coalition with their own people. And that can, coalition can be more or less oppressive. But the more oppressive a government, sometimes the more concerned it is about public opinion. I mean, you saw this in, you know China well, but the reversal of the COVID policy was in part a product of public opinion that is monitored very carefully without elections. Mm -hmm. And in a TikTok world, in a world of social media um, spreading around the world, that sense that there is this struggle to hold the ring for any kind of government, I think is very true. There are some very important elections this year. Obviously, the US election is probably the most important, an Indian election very important Indonesian election, not to forget the British election that we are both uh, concerned about or care about. Um, so they could they could easily um, make life more difficult. And of course, in the year before an election, there's a lot of hedging. And you can feel that already because no one knows how the US election is going to turn out. Anyone who says to you they do know hasn't been following it carefully enough. And so... I think that there's a real, this is why this sense of vacuum, I think, is so dangerous. So you think one of the, the problems is that people are just playing the clock, people like Netanyahu, for example, who wants to stay in power but avoid a two-state solution, is just sort of hoping that he can hang on for long enough that until Trump comes back. If, uh, I wouldn't say that's the most obvious case. I would think that the, the yeah, I think the Ukraine case is a more obvious um, it's more on a, there's a more obvious correlation stroke causation there, people were saying, even September at the UN meetings, that the prospects for um, Ukraine hang in the balance given the US election and given the antipathy that former President Trump has declared to the Ukrainian cause. Uh, so I think that's a more obvious example. But there's also, look, you're not doing your job in a foreign ministry or in a government if you're not hedging on the result of the US election because it has so much 
implications for the global order. So uh, um, why don't we stick with the, the Middle East for, for, for a bit longer? You've obviously been um, dealing with a lot of the consequences of, of the conflict, but if you were foreign secretary at the moment uh, or, uh, or European uh, high rep um, and advising Europeans on what to do, what do you think outsiders can do? I mean, obviously a lot of it is... is um, predicated on, on what Washington's doing. But what do you think that... Well, tempting as it is to, to put on that hat, I've got to take my responsibilities very seriously. We've got 2,200 IRC staff in the Middle East. We have a team uh, jointly with medical aid for the Palestinians working in Gaza. I think our first job, my first job, is to bear witness to what the doctors and support staff are saying from inside Khan Yunis, which is a horror show of, of absolutely epic proportions in the the scale of the killing, you know, 25,000 people dead, 10,000 kids, that's 100 kids a day. Um, we've got to bear witness to that. And then you've got numbers of injured, which are estimated at 60,000, 70,000. It's very hard to get those estimates. But the doctors who, who work with us they are working to keep alive, you know, literally one-year-olds who've had limbs blown off. So that bearing of witness to just the sheer scale and depth of the humanitarian situation in Gaza, I think, is, a, is, is the humanitarian case for a ceasefire is overwhelming. And we've not yet succeeded in prosecuting that case. And every day that goes by... I think the case becomes stronger. And I'm worried that I can see why the geopolitics of the region, quote unquote, two state solutions, although sometimes, you know, if incantation of a two state solution led to We'd peace, we would have had it a long time ago. <laughs> so I don't want to, I think it's, it's, a, it's doubly or trebly important not to be glib um, at the moment. The danger is that while there is a big equation to be put together, of the elements that you refer to, plus the normalization, plus the economic improvement. The danger of that, you know, I, I tend, I'm someone who quite likes the old Eisenhower phrase, that if you, if you can't solve a problem, enlarge it. Yeah. But I'm worried that that is gonna create many more points of weakness. The fundamental thing that has to happen is now fine. is to stop the fighting now. Because everything gets more difficult because when the killing gets worse, and by the way, and don't ignore what's happening in the West Bank either, because there's been now 300 people killed in the West Bank. Uh, the prison population has gone up from 5,000 to 11,000 in the last um, three months. And there is a tinderbox in many parts of the region. It's not, it's not one tinderbox, that there are several. And so, as I say, it's tempting to, for me to give grander advice. I think the most... Uh, the only advantage I can bring is the contact that we have with people who are in Khan Yunis trying to survive and, and serve today. And how worried are you, I mean, talking about uh, the tinderbox, uh, about the Israelis, you know, moving into, into Lebanon now, because that would make a ceasefire, you know, well, I'm not. I mean, I think the point about a tinderbox is there are many points yeah. of spark. There are many. Yeah. So I, I, I'm worried. I mean, in a way, it's a bit. It's a bit late to be saying you're worried about the the regionalization of this problem, given that 
you've got the West Bank situation, given that you've got the yeah, you've got rockets from Hezbollah, given yeah. that you've got the Houthi situation, yeah. I mean, given that you've got the no, Iraq. No, it's a regional war So already. it's all, well, it's not, I think that's, I wouldn't go as far as saying that. I don't think it's a regional war already, but the region is invested in conflict at the moment in a very, very dangerous way. And it, it, it's, you know, it, if it does become a full-scale regional conflagration, we will see these initial skirmishes very much as the, the sparks that then lit the tinderbox. So how does one push for that ceasefire beyond calling for it? I mean, now people are very reluctant at the beginning, but now a lot of countries have come out calling for a humanitarian ceasefire. The US is becoming a bit more outspoken in terms of the... Well, I think one has to speak to the situation on the ground. And obviously the fact that three and a half months in, there are still 130 hostages, the Hamas leadership is still in place, the rockets are still being fired, tells you something very fundamental about the limits of a military solution. Yeah. And I do have to be ultra focused on my own humanitarian lane, especially in this um, conflict. But I think that that is an obvious point. And the, the, the testimony is, is real and the dangers should be obvious. I mean, we, the world has learned a lot about how to fight terrorism over the last 30 or 40 years. And there are some very basic things about, for example, separating civilians um, and protecting them. It's a right in international law for civilians to be protected from conflict, yet 90% of the victims of conflict globally, not just in the Middle East, are civilians. It's a, it's a right in international law for civilians to receive humanitarian aid, not just in the Middle East, but elsewhere we've seen in the recent years. That's being denied, whether in northern Nigeria or in Ethiopia. You, you can look in other uh, places. And our emphasis as a humanitarian organization is obviously to focus on each individual conflict and make sure that we have context-appropriate humanitarian interventions. But we also have a responsibility to draw out the wider trends, trends about impunity, trends about the conflict climate nexus, trends about the internationalization of civil wars, which is a really significant change in the last 15 years. So I think that that's our responsibility. Okay. So the, the other big conflict which we talked about, which you've also worked in as IRC, is, is Ukraine, where a lot of the arguments that you were making about impunity, about civilians, um, were being made by Western leaders around Ukraine last year, the year before, we're coming up to the second anniversary of, of, of the war. What's your sense now of the, the situation in Ukraine and do you want to reflect a bit on some of the big arguments that we saw? Zelensky came and made a big, a very passionate speech um, uh, to, to the gathered masses of, of uh, 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 Davos. There's a Ukraine pavilion here. There's a lot of Ukraine activities going on. In fact, there was a meeting before Davos even started of national security advisors looking at the, at, at, at the, at the, at the situation. But what, how, what's your take on where we're at now? Yeah. I was on a train um, when President Zelensky was, was speaking, so I wasn't able to be here for his uh, address. Uh, but a couple of things. One, I don't like the language of stalemate because I think that suggests that there's no, there's nothing going on. Whereas there's anyone will tell you, and our teams would tell you from the east of Ukraine, there's a lot going on, uh, even if the battle lines aren't shifting in um, dramatic ways. Secondly, I think it's very, very important to think about how the long term or the medium term on the social side as well as on the military side. There's a, there's a medium term 
military plan, which anyone from Ukraine will tell you, there needs to be a medium-term social plan as well. And I don't, I, I, there was a breakfast this morning, which I wasn't able to go to, but I, I was told that there was there were various European leaders talking in that sort of way, because the sustenance of the Ukrainians needs to have a social angle as well as a military angle. Thirdly, there's the politics of all this, and that is severely complicated by the Gaza situation, because a lot of, I don't like the language of fence sitting myself, but there was a lot of countries that, while they didn't support the uh, invasion of Ukraine, they weren't willing to condemn it and certainly weren't willing to add sanctions to it. I wrote in Foreign Affairs um, last year that Ukraine had united the West but divided the West from the, the rest. And that's become more difficult because of the allegations of double standards in respect of the Gaza conflict. Actually, if you get into it, they're very different, but nonetheless, there's, it, it's piled on there. So I think the politics um, around Ukraine are more complex. I do want to make this point, though. Given that complex politics globally, given the American situation that we referred to earlier, the onus and the importance of Europeans not just holding their unity, but holding their sense of purpose is ever more important because that becomes a very, very dangerous part of the of the story if we're not careful. I think that's one of the most striking things about Gaza. There's both all the questions about moral authority and double standards and things like that that have come out, but also this sense that um, for many Europeans, Ukraine, in fact, Ukraine is an existential matter. It's something which completely changes our world and, the, and what happens in Ukraine is, is totally uh, essential. But it, to the world, it feels more like a regional problem than a global problem. In some ways, Gaza is more of a global uh, crisis um, for, for many people around the world. It has much more resonance than, than Ukraine does for people outside of Europe. Um, and the, the, the danger, I suppose, is as Ukraine goes from being seen as a global crisis to being a regional one, that um, uh, people, other people's attention will kind of move on. It's inevitable that the U.S., um, is going to be more focused on the Indo-Pacific as, as we go forward. And Europeans need to get more involved rather than less involved as other people um, uh, move on because we don't have an option about this. This is our neighbourhood. This is our security. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. What did the Indian foreign minister say? He said that Europeans have got to stop... Assuming the, that the, the Europe's problems are the world's problems. The, the West's problems are the world's no, problems. No, he, he had this phrase that Europeans have got to drop the pretense or the argument that Europe's problems are the world's problems, but yeah. the world's problems are not Europe's yeah. problems. And um, your, your your point about, you know, someone said at the conference from Berlin to Jakarta, people are demonstrating about um, Gaza. They're not demonstrating about Ukraine. And it very much is, look, for, for certain, you know, for Baltic countries, for Eastern European countries, it's an existential issue. But the, 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 the omerta on changing territorial lines by force should be a global issue. That's the that's the frustration of this, that um, you know, I'm coming at this um, from the fact people say, well, we're defending democracy in Ukraine. Look, Kuwait was defended 30 years ago, not because it was a democracy, but because you, you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, change, borders you shouldn't change, change borders by force. Yeah. And it, the, we know from the hundreds of years of history before 1945, when there were very weakly enforced rules, about sovereignty and territorial integrity, the dangers of essentially a, a, a global anarchy. And that, that is the threat uh, 
the threatened lesson if the invasion is, is, is successful. And that's why I think Europeans have a very strong argument, but they also have a very strong responsibility because it is our neighborhood. So you talked earlier about how this was the, the G0 Davos, that, that there is a sense that the great powers don't really have a handle on what's happening, whether it's in Ukraine. Well, they have a handle, but they don't have the leverage. Yeah. Uh, and I'm very taken with this argument. I don't know if you, you've written about this, but you know, everyone says, oh, well, we've gone from a unilateral world, a unipolar world, to a multipolar world. And the trouble with that idea of a multipolar world, which speaks to shifting balance of economic and military power, is that multipolar, to my ears, sounds quite stable. Yeah. It's like you've got, you haven't got one point of power, you've got, I don't know, six or even 10, but they're in a kind of lattice work and there's, you know, I'm very taken that we're not living in a multipolar world, we're living in a multi-aligned world. And you, you probably know that the idea of multi-alignment came from Shashi Tharoor 15 years ago when he was a UN diplomat. It's been picked up by the Indian, the current Indian foreign minister. And it speaks to the idea that it's a, it's a sharp-elbowed, transactional, um, shape-shifting world of alignments rather than alliances that are quite time-limited and quite issue-limited. And I think that notion of a multi-aligned world, where, by the way, the alignments aren't just between states, there are non-state actors, there are private business actors that are, who are regulators, not just implementers, in the way they do their business. Just think of the AI debate. I think that's that it, the, the the global powers like uh, the US or China they've got a handle on what's going on. The question is whether they can control what's going on. Yeah. No, I think the absence of control and also just this general sense of uncertainty everywhere. I mean, the Chinese Prime Minister was here, gave a big speech talking about how opening reform was still uh, ongoing in China, encouraging people to come and make money in China. Uh, talking about the return of Chinese growth. And that obviously came from a kind of deep sense of insecurity about how geopolitics is leading well, to... But that's the one good thing. The one good thing at the moment <laughs> is that the Americans and the Chinese have both woken up to the fact they can't they can't afford this drift. Yeah. So do, they, you think, do you think it's a pause button that's been pressed or do you think that, that something structural has changed? In respect of... US-China. Well, I think that the, the, the three legs of the stool of compete, confront, cooperate... Yeah weren't standing up because cooperate was nowhere. Yeah. And so I've cooperating on fentanyl. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they've also got military to military dialogue, dialogue which is some, I mean, yeah. it, it shows you how, you know, it's, it's not that they it's are strong, but we're base. on our knees. It's a low base. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, I, I've never bought the argument that the Chinese wanted to just upend the global order. They've got too yeah. much vested... First of all, they're gaining too much, but they've, they've got too much vested interest in the sustenance of the bits of the global order that they like. And I, I think that President Biden has serious about wanting a multilateral order that works. So strategically, the interdependence that I referred to earlier, a very good example of that is the way that the, the Chinese and American in, economies are interlocked. That's why it's not... Cold War II isn't really the right um, framing, to my mind. But both the US and China have got very strong interests of their own that they're trying to pursue that are not in the cooperate bucket. And the pressure in the US, I see that from living in New York, you know, the, the small yard high fence, it's going to be very tough to keep the small yard small Yeah. Um, when it comes to limits on engagement. And um, I, I think that the, the structural 
reasons for US and China to cooperate remain very strong. So there's no pause button on that. Whether or not that can outride the domestic politics in both countries is an open question. So we're coming to the very end of our thing, but there are two big transitions which are in the backdrop of this, which uh, are increasingly at the heart of the US-China relationship as well. One is the, the energy transition towards a, a kind of net zero, and the other is is Gen AI, as people are calling it, uh, well, we're here. Um, but the, the sort of fourth industrial revolution and the next wave of technological change. How do you, I, I mean, we don't have, we could, we could do podcasts on, on either of those topics, but in your kind of mind, how do those things play into the way that we think about world order and the things that, that we've been discussing up till now? Well, I think they, they scramble the pack. Both of them scramble the pack. I mean, the, the energy transition scrambles the pack in some obvious ways, but also some less obvious ways. I mean, where are the critical minerals today? Suddenly those countries are more powerful, yeah, more powerful than before. Where's, where's the solar capital of, um, of the world going to be? It's not going to be in South Shields in, in my former <laughs> constituency in the UK, wonderful as it is. So um, it, it's, it's scrambling the game, the energy uh, transition. And of course, it, the energy transition has to be linked to a development transition because there are billions of people who are just left out of the gains of globalization and if they're not dealt in then there's there's going to be enormous trouble to pay on the on the um the broader than ai on the on the technological uh, scrambling i think it's scrambling power i refer to the multi-aligned world yeah it's empowered technology companies um but it's also uh, striking um to think i mean i heard today that even one of the smaller uh, of the of the global technology giants is investing $40 billion uh, this year in just capital investment for the computing infrastructure it needs for the AI revolution. This was self-confessed, not the biggest spender on this. Yeah. And I think it's right in saying 50% of the world's investment in AI is coming in America, 40% in China. Where is Europe in this story? I think President Macron is onto this. He strikes me as one of the few that Rishi Sunak had his regulatory summit. That's yeah. not the issue. The issue is who's going to be not writing the rules, but driving the, the train on this digital revolution, this incredible revolution. And at the moment, it's not in Europe. So for, for ECFR, I think that is a, a foreign policy issue, actually. Absolutely. And it is very striking how the, the kind of real superstars of, of this Davos are the heads of those companies. It's Sam Altman and the head of Microsoft and um, uh, Mustafa Suleiman and people like yeah. that who are kind of holding court in different parts of the of the, uh, of the, the mountain. Well, they're holding court and having their own battles. Open source versus closed is, yeah. you know, that's a big battle. Great, wonderful. So uh, we covered a lot of ground. There's still another uh, uh, day of, of Davos where a lot more things are going to happen. Lots of European leaders uh, coming in and giving speeches. Emmanuel Macron, Pedro Sanchez, um, and um, uh, we will uh, carry on talking about the big themes that, that David and I have been uh, discussing over the last 25 minutes um, in many more podcasts this year. But there's one thing left to do on this podcast, and that is our bookshelf segment. Oh, yeah. Um, is there anything you want to recommend? What's on your bookshelf? Uh, I've just finished one book and I've started another. So I finished Adam Grant's book on human potential. And it's all about how character really matters and should be more important to education and explains a lot more. 
And then I've started reading an absolutely extraordinary, terrifying in some ways book um, by Suzanne Haywood. I don't know if you know Suzanne. She's the widow of Jeremy Haywood, who was the UK cabinet secretary. And she's written a book called Sleepwalker about the 10 years she spent from the age of eight to 18 on a boat traveling around the world because her dad decided, I've only read the first three or four chapters, her dad decided that when she was seven years old, he came down to breakfast one morning and said, right, we're going to sail around the world just like Captain Cook. (laughs) And she then talks about, so far only the beginning, but it's enough to give you nightmares really to be from my, I get seasick in the bath, never mind uh, on a boat. And so I'm, um, I shouldn't be reading it just before falling asleep if it's going to give me nightmares, but um, I'm, I've just started that. Great. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu, where we'll also uh, put a link to the emergency watch list, which the International Rescue Committee publishes. Um, you which, should give me 30 seconds on okay, the internet on the, uh, on why this should be a bestseller and you don't have to pay that, for it. We can add that to the, to the bookshelf. Uh, okay, so on my, <laughs> right, top of my, top of my bookshelf, let me just say a word about the IRC's emergency watch list, which is our database, 65 data sources, um, assessment of the countries most likely to suffer from humanitarian disaster in 2024. And there's various striking things about these 20 countries. One, eight out of 10 of the top 10 are in Africa, 11 out of the top 20. Secondly, the increasing concentration of humanitarian need. 86% of the world's humanitarian need is in these countries. Thirdly, the nexus, the interlink between conflict and and climate. 14 of the top 20 countries for humanitarian crisis are in the top quartile of climate vulnerability on the Notre Dame Index, which I think is interesting. Um, And then there is the issue that really, I think, is the most it troubles me a lot as running a humanitarian organization, dealing with the symptoms of, of disaster. Um, the, the lengthening time, duration of conflict, because civil conflicts are becoming not just more, more um, marked by impunity, they're also becoming more marked by their length. Um, I think seven of the top 10 countries haven't had a year of peace in the last uh, 10 years. Wow. So you've got, I think... Uh, as I say, a, a very cheap bestseller because it's free on the IRC website, rescue.org. Okay, so we'll put links up to all these publications on our website at ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe to future episodes on whatever platform you use to download us. We will um, uh, also be very grateful if you could leave positive reviews and a five-star rating when you are looking at these things. But for now, from David Miliband and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The research of our podcast is Anand Sundar and our producer is Maria Farrow-Sarantz.